Last week, here in Modern Worship, we had the coolest opportunity ever. Kristen Steed is our adult discipleship coordinator, and she was here to give her very first sermon ever. It was wonderful, and I am beyond grateful to be a part of a church with such strong preaching and leadership teams. Kristen did a great job at introducing all of us to the book of James, and and that is what this four-week series is all on. I am eager for us to even go further in that letter today. Kristen covered chapter one, and she talked about how kindness is such a great way to really demonstrate to all people that we care for them. Today, we're going to look at chapter two. Next week, we'll focus on chapter three, and then for the last week, we're going to combine chapters four and five, which may be too much for us to chew, but we'll try to get through it. If you have never read the letter of James, this is the perfect opportunity, like I mentioned earlier, to read along as we continue. I love doing this type of series with you all because it gives us a chance to really zero in on an entire book of the Bible, which can be really fruitful for us to do together as a community. Will you join me all in prayer? God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The book of James is found in the New Testament, and it covers a wide swath of topics. But when we read the book in its entirety from front to end, we notice one common critique that James makes throughout the entire letter. James wants to know if the people he's writing to are friends of the world or if they're friends of God. Are you a friend of the world or are you a friend of God? Here at church, we are quick to say, duh, we're a friend of God, right? Of course. But how do we really live our lives when we're out and about in the world? It's a tougher question than I think some of us may be willing to admit. And honestly, it may look different for each of us depending on the day or the mood we find ourselves in. It probably will come as no surprise that the number of people who identify as Christian has dropped drastically lately. Gallup released a poll on Friday that the number of Americans who believe in God has dropped to the lowest level in the 78 years that Gallup has asked the question. Between 1944 and 2011, you can almost see it, more than 90% of Americans believed in God. That number is down to 81% this year. I don't know that we Christians always live our lives like we are friends of God. I think these statistics say more about us and the church than they do about God working in the world. Often, we fail to be the best people we can be. We choose selfishness over selflessness. We work to get ahead, and we don't always consider those who we are pushing down in order to do so. 
A few weeks ago, I was talking with a colleague about being a woman in ministry, and we took some time to reflect on moments where we maybe failed at being a friend of God. Moments where we brought attention to someone else's shortcomings in order to make ourselves look better. When we hurt someone else in order to get ahead. Even in church work, I have failed to be a friend of God at all times. There's something about living in a society that is constantly pushing for more innovation, more success, more profits that can rub off on the way each of us live our lives and how we treat one another too. In the second chapter of James, he spends a majority of the time writing about favoritism, the idea that some people are more worthy than others. Once again, this may seem like the perfect time for us to all sigh and say, okay, okay, we know favoritism is bad. We know we should not believe that some people are more worthy than others. But how do we really live that out in the world? In what ways do we favor certain people over others? And why is doing so so super problematic to who we are called to be as followers of Jesus? James does a pretty great job at spelling it out for us in the beginning of the second chapter. We're going to start there with verses 1 through 10. James writes, My brothers and sisters, when you show favoritism, you deny the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ who has been resurrected in glory. Imagine two people coming into your meeting. One has a gold ring and fine clothes, while the other is poor, dressed in filthy rags. Then suppose that you were to take special notice of the one wearing fine clothes, saying, here's an excellent place at the head of the table. Sit here. But to the poor person, you say, stand over there at the end of the table. Or here, sit at my feet. Wouldn't you have shown favoritism among yourselves and become evil-minded judges? My dear brothers and sisters, listen. Hasn't God chosen those who are poor by worldly standards to be rich in terms of faith? Hasn't God chosen the poor as heirs of the kingdom he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Don't the wealthy make life difficult for you? Aren't they the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who insult the good name spoken over you at your baptism? Friends, you do well when you really fulfill the royal law found in scripture. The one we all know well too. Love your neighbor as yourself. But when you show favoritism, you are committing a sin. And by that same law, you are exposed as a lawbreaker. Anyone who tries to keep all of the law but fails at one point is guilty of failing to keep it all. 
This is the word of God for the people of God. Let the church say thanks be to God. James is pretty blunt and upfront at how obvious a problem favoritism can be in the life of these early believers. We know exactly what he's talking about too. Those times in our lives when we wanted to be friends with the cool kid, not the kid who was wearing the same shirt two days in a row, or when we wanted to be friends with the family who seemed to have it all together instead of the family who seemed like they could barely hold it together. We know what it's like to favor the wealthy and the well-off over the poor or the struggling. Believe it or not, Jesus, like James, had a lot to say about the wealthy and the poor. Over and over, Jesus emphasized how worthy the poor were. I would not say that Jesus favored the poor over the wealthy. He spent just as much time with people of all social statuses. But the difference is, Jesus didn't have to convince the poor that the wealthy were worthy. Society and culture already shouted that loud and in your face. Wealthy are worthy. It's the poor who needed the reminder that they too were worthy. It was the poor who were forgotten and overlooked and shunned and often deemed unworthy. We haven't come that far all of these years later. We still don't do a great job at caring for others. Because we're so focused on being successful and driving the right car and having our kids in the right activities, we don't always take time to notice all of our neighbors. And we all fail at this. We all fail to see all people as created as worthy and created by God. When we are so bad at loving our neighbors, is it any surprise that people take a look around at the state of the world and humanity and say they no longer believe in God? James is right. Favoritism indicates that we are a friend of the world and not a friend of God. Today is the second year we have a federally recognized holiday of Juneteenth. It is the day where we recognize the emancipation of enslaved African Americans. While President Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in January of 1863, it was not until June 19th, 1865, two and a half years later, that this freedom reached those who were enslaved here in Texas. It's another stark reminder of how favoritism has manifested in our world. Favoritism can happen with any class of persons with less social power. It happens based on race, sexual orientation, immigration status, age, religion, nationality, just to name a few. 
Favoritism happens all around us. Last week, Kristen shared with us that Martin Luther, the guy who wrote the 95 Thesis and nailed it to the door of a Catholic church, thus beginning the Protestant Reformation, that guy, Martin Luther, he was not sure if this letter from James should even be included in the Bible. His way of thinking comes from what James writes in this second chapter. Let's read verses 14 through 17. James writes, My brothers and sisters, what good is it if people say they have faith, but do nothing to show it? Claiming to have faith can't save anyone, can it? Imagine a brother or sister who is naked and never has enough food to eat. What if one of you said, Go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal. What good is it if you don't actually give them what their body needs? In the same way, faith is dead when it doesn't result in faithful activity. Someone might claim, you have faith and I have action, but how can I see your faith apart from your actions? Instead, I'll show you my faith by putting it into practice in faithful action. Martin Luther was very hesitant of faith by good works. He was a big critic of the Catholic Church who at the time were using indulgences, which meant that people could atone for their sins by paying a certain monetary amount. Luther thought that this was unbiblical and that it was exploitive for the church to do. Hence, he didn't love this part of James. He didn't like the idea that you could show your faith just through your actions. But the thing about James is he for sure was not about paying for forgiveness. Instead, James believed that actions speak louder than words. He believed instead of saying, go in peace, stay warm, have a nice meal, that people should actually provide acts of peace, items of worth, and nourishing food. We can love Jesus in our hearts all day long, but if we don't live our lives like Jesus out in the world, then something's missing. This is how we work to remedy favoritism in our world. It begins by not just being people who say we are faithful, but being people who are actually faithful out in the world. It means speaking up for those who are being silenced. It means giving of our time even when it's inconvenient or awkward or even painful. It means pulling up seat after seat after seat after seat at the table until there is room for every single human being. I will preach this message until the day I die. All people are worthy. And if we live our lives in any sort of way that suggests otherwise, then we're not friends of God. 
We've chosen to be friends of the world instead. It's only when we all start actually doing the things we read in scripture out in the world. It's only when we start seeing every single last human being as worthy that we're truly doing what Christ calls us to do. I believe people will continue to know God. I believe that Gallup poll will rise back up. I do not believe that this world is lost or beyond hope. I know God will prevail. And we must continue to do our part of being a part of that story. We must fight against favoritism in every form it presents itself. We must continue to be in relationship and conversation with those who are in different classes than ourselves. We must choose good and hope and truth and God over and over again. We won't be perfect. We will keep failing. Those selfish moments will still creep in. But every day, we have opportunities to live our faith out in the world through our actions. We are called to share Jesus with the world. May we go out and do so. Amen.